got your Bible this morning, I invite you to take it and turn with me, please, to the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. And I really want to take our text from verse 14 all the way through verse 41, which is a long portion of Scripture, but I really want to deal with it in its entirety because it's the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And as such, it serves as the very first Christian sermon that was preached. You might could say it was the inaugural sermon of the church age. And it's from this point that the church is really launched and will be sent forth, propelled forth into the world, uh, beginning right there in the city of Jerusalem. And really, the God-given results of this sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost are nothing short of miraculous Now, before we look at the text, those of us who do this uh, week in and week out can really tell you about the thousand deaths that we die uh, as the unforeseen things often happen when we preach. Uh, There are things that happen. Things don't always go according to plan from time to time. If you really want to humble a preacher, just find some tapes of his first sermons, and I guarantee you that will absolutely humble him. And I cringe at the thought. Um... I remember the first church that I served on one occasion, I had started preaching, and I noticed that there were a few snickers in the crowd, and I'm not talking about candy bars, I'm talking about laughing, and uh, that's never a thing that you really want to hear out of the gate when you begin to preach, and uh, Anita, in that little church, she was sitting about the second or third row, and I remember doing something like this with her hand, and I, I interpreted that as, this stinks, and so, man, I just started preaching harder, uh, that's what you do. Well, what I didn't realize was that I had taken my handkerchief and had wiped my nose before I started preaching, and there was a white string from that handkerchief that had attached itself to one of my nose holes. And so every time I was saying something, it was sort of flapping in the breeze, you know, like that. (laughs) I don't know if it ever caught on or not. I can't, but it might have flew off or something. But, you know, there's not a Sunday that goes by where I don't make sure that buttons are buttoned, zippers are zipped, and strings are removed. Um, you know, honestly, I, I did some calculating this week, and I've been your pastor since October of 2013. And during that time, I have preached around 320 Sunday sermons. And if you add to that the amount of Wednesday night Bible studies or lessons that I've taught, it's anywhere from 580 to 600 different messages that I've been responsible for. On average, I'm speaking in a venue like this before a congregation of people for approximately two hours and 15 minutes every week. That's twice on Sunday morning, uh, once on Wednesday night, and in the last six years or so, that adds up to roughly 780 hours, or just five straight weeks of me running my mouth. (laughs) And the bottom line is, I've got a lot to be accountable to God for when I stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat, as does everyone who teaches, who preaches. Uh, Which is why James said in James chapter 3, verse 1, Brethren, be not many of you teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And you know something? I have never preached a perfect sermon. I will never, ever preach a perfect sermon because I am an imperfect vessel. Neither will you ever teach a perfect lesson if you're a teacher because you too are an imperfect vessel. But isn't it an amazing thing that the Bible 
tells us of how our God takes imperfect vessels like us and he uses us to carry out his will, uh, to do what he's commanded us to do. And he doesn't expect us to rely in our own, on our own efforts or our own personality and our own strengths and that kind of thing, but he expects us to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us to serve him and to obey him. And Christianity, it's not you imitating Jesus, but rather it's Jesus Christ who's living his life in you and through you. And folks, that's what Pentecost really is all about. As the church is born at Pentecost, the spirit of the living God comes to make his home in the hearts of believing men and women just like us. And, and he empowers us for the specific purpose of being a witness. And that's what Peter is doing here at the day of Pentecost as he preaches this sermon that we're going to read here in, in the text. He's an imperfect vessel, not a perfect man by any stretch, and yet God empowers him for the task of preaching the gospel. And the results of this preaching, it's, it's nothing short of remarkable, miraculous, because the Bible says down in verse 41 that there are 3,000 people who come to faith in Jesus, who believe the gospel message as Peter has declared it with boldness. The great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the conversion of those 3,000 people was entirely because of the descent of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit using the words of a frail, ignorant man, but driving them into the minds, the hearts, and the consciences of those listening. And so it's interesting to me that the first event of church history that followed the coming of the Spirit was this sermon that Peter preaches at the day of Pentecost, whereby the church of the living God is launched. So you've got your Bible there, Acts chapter 2. I want you to find your place at verse 14. Let's stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, verse number 14, preaching from this thought this morning, uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, because that's what this is, the text that we're going to read. The Bible says in verse 14 that Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now remember, that's, that's sort of uh, the skeptics who witnessed what had happened when the Spirit had come to live within the believers to fill the apostles who were speaking the word in other languages there, legitimate languages at Pentecost, some asked the question, what does this mean? Others wrote it off as them just being drunk. But Peter is, is, is sort of capitalizing on the opportunity, and he steps up and he preaches, and he gives an explanation. He says, listen, they're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. He says, but this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Aren't you grateful for that? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, they say every sermon, every good sermon has a main point. And that's Peter's main point right there. You need to know uh, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now the Bible says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a powerful, powerful message. So Lord, in Jesus' name, would you speak in a powerful way in our hearts and lives, for Christ's sake, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, the book of Acts, as you study it carefully, you read through it carefully, you will discover that in the book of Acts, Luke places priority on the preaching of the gospel message, whether it be by the apostles 
as in this case, as Peter is preaching here in Acts chapter 2, or whether it be by believers as they're scattered throughout the world. Uh, For instance, Acts chapter 4 verse 2 says that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 5 verse 42 says every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Acts chapter 8 verse 4, those who were scattered as the result of persecution, they went about everywhere preaching the word. And so preaching has always played a central role in the mission of God for his people. Even in the Old Testament, we read about the ministries of the prophets, men like Moses and Elijah, Isaiah and Jeremiah. The New Testament presents us with the ministries of men like John the Baptist who came preaching in the wilderness. Even the Lord Jesus himself, as he began his ministry, says that he began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and, and the apostles and uh, pastors all follow in their wake. Uh, the apostle Paul told Timothy, preach the word. God has seen to it that his word be declared forth. Uh, what God has done in real time as far as redemptive history, uh, what God has done in the unique person of Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners unto himself Uh, He has tasked us as believers with this mission of proclaiming and heralding the message, preaching the message that Jesus saves. And so Peter's sermon then at Pentecost, it really presents us with the content that ought to be found in every gospel sermon. Every gospel conversation or presentation or sharing even one-on-one with someone Uh, In many ways, what we find in this passage, uh, it's a model for anyone who wants to verbally communicate the truth of the gospel with another. Which, by the way, that's what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. God has seen to it that we as believers verbally declare what God has done in Christ to save people. Someone says, well, you know, I know that that witnessing involves sharing your faith and that kind of thing, but I'm just the type of Christian, I want everybody to see uh, my faith through what I do. Well, I understand that, and I know that there ought to be evidence in my life, there ought to be Christ-honoring works in my life that point people to Jesus. But folks, the gospel message is a message of words. And for you to not share the gospel message using your words would be like you trying to give your phone number to someone but not giving them any numbers. Words make up the gospel message. And if we're to be witnesses, it means that we've got to open up our mouths in the power of the Spirit of God and verbally declare what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a witness. And so really, when you look at Peter's sermon, There really are four critical components that should be found in every sermon as well as every gospel presentation. So notice with me component number one. Uh, In his sermon, Peter is faithful to the scriptures. Uh, He's faithful to the word of God. Uh, In fact, you, you read his sermon, you study his sermon, you'll find out that Peter just, his sermon is saturated with the truth of God's word. Now, keep in mind, he didn't have a New Testament like we do, but he did have the Old. 
And it's obvious here that he knew what the Bible said. He knew it well. And so notice a couple of things then. Notice the occasion for his sermon. Uh, Verse 14 shows us how Peter is really responding to the questions that were raised back up in verses 12 and 13. In the previous passage, we're told that the Holy Spirit had come to live within the believers. The disciples were filled with the Spirit. And supernaturally, they began to speak in other legitimate languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And it was all a miraculous display of God's power for the purpose of declaring the gospel to the multiplied thousands who were there in the city of Jerusalem. And so some had asked this question, what does this mean? What's going on? How can you explain this? Others who were skeptical wrote it off as a drunken display. Men who were out of their minds, under the influence of alcohol. Listen, it was obvious to the entire crowd, it was obvious to the entire multitude that These apostles were indeed under the influence of something, but Peter's going to show them they're not under the influence of something, they're under the influence of someone. And it's the power of God that's on display in these disciples' lives. The multitude is captivated by the fact that the lives of these disciples are radically different than anything they've ever seen before. And so they ask the question, what does this mean? What is this? Now, I can't help but think that sometimes people don't listen to what we say because they, get, they can't get past what they see when they look at our lives. Our life is no different than anyone else. We're so immersed in the culture and so immersed in the world around us and so worldly that what we say seems to really contradict what we are. That doesn't happen here in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the multitude is looking at these, these men and women who were so remarkably different that they ask the question, what does this mean? How do you explain this power that's characteristic of your life? Their lives were different. And so Peter's sermon then becomes the basis for explaining what had happened. So that was the occasion of his sermon. And then notice the exposition itself. Down in verse number 16, Peter connects what happened with the Old Testament scriptures. He goes all the way back into the Old Testament. He appeals to what the scripture had said. He expounds it in terms of the facts. And he says, these are not drunk like you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. He says, instead, what you're witnessing had been spoken of in biblical prophecy. And his entire sermon is a recital of the facts. And it's an explanation of the facts. Folks, we're not dealing with fables and fairy tales when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about what God has done in real time to save men and women like us. Christianity, biblical, New Testament Christianity, it's a historical faith. The acts of of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and even the apostles, all of this is recorded history that we're dealing with. And so Peter reaches back into the Old Testament and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. What was the significance of him quoting from the prophet Joel? Well, you don't have to turn there, but the prophet Joel, history tells us that he ministered during a time of disaster, in Israel. 
a natural disaster. Locusts had swarmed over the land and had pretty much eaten up every green thing. And in an agrarian society, that spells disaster for that society. And, and in the Old Testament, whenever you saw something like that happen in the land, wherever there was famine, wherever there was swarms of locusts and invaders, uh, it always was a sign of judgment because God's people had turned to idols. They had turned away from the truth of God. They had embraced idols, had given themselves over to idolatry, and as a result, God often allowed the invader to come in and swarm the land. Well, the prophet Joel uses the opportunity of the locust plague to show how the destruction caused by those, lo- those locusts, really it would be nothing compared to the coming judgment of God upon sin. And yet Joel also spoke of a future time of blessing. And, and, and this is so beautiful, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Old Testament. Joel spoke about a time where God would restore the years that the swarming locust had eaten. Joel prophesied about the grace of God, what God would do as people would repent of their sin and in faith turn to God in his grace and in his mercy. In response, God would restore the years that the locust had eaten. Now, you ever made some decisions in your life that you regret? You regret? You've done something, you've been somewhere, you've, you've said something, you, you regret, and it's caused pain and heartache in your life, and pain and heartache in the lives of those that you love, and you feel like you've messed up. Listen, aren't you grateful that our God is a God who restores the years that the locust had eaten? That's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the prophet Joel declared that God would one day pour out his spirit upon the nation as they were repentant. And the result of the Spirit's filling would be this. Uh, God's people would then open up their mouths and they would verbally declare his truth. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy as the result of the Spirit being poured out without measure. And, And that's what Peter is referencing here in his sermon as he shows how Joel's prophecy has now been partially fulfilled in the sending of the Holy Spirit to live within believers, to empower those believers in their prophetic witness. And what if I told you that God saved you for the purpose of making a preacher out of you? Now, not everyone will preach in the formal sense. Not every man has a pastoral calling called to teach and lead and shepherd. But folks, every single one of us as New Covenant believers have been given the ministry of proclamation, reconciliation, whereby the Spirit of God who lives in us as believers empowers us for the purpose of opening up our mouths and declaring the wonderful truth of the gospel. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That's what the prophet Joel was dealing with. You say, well, what's this day of the Lord business, you know, that Peter mentions and Joel mentions and blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Well, Old Testament prophecy has dual fulfillment. It often had an immediate fulfillment and then it often had a future fulfillment. And the Old Testament prophets, um, again, from our perspective, we know that the end of the age didn't accompany the coming of Christ. But this was concealed and it was in mystery form to the prophets of the Old Testament. 
And so the day of the Lord is the end of the age. We know it as the second coming of Christ. But you see, the Old Testament prophets saw those two events like two mountain peaks in the far distance, but they couldn't see the valley in between those two mountain peaks. We live in the valley, the valley of mission, the age of the Spirit, or the age of the church whereby God's uh, mission force on earth now, it's the Spirit of God who is indwelling believers for the purpose of declaring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the bride of Christ is being formed. God is building his church. And in between the Lord's first and second coming is this missionary period in which we live. That's why the mission of the church uh, is of utmost importance. That's why the church is not a country club. It's why the church is not primarily a social gathering. It's why the church is not a place for us to have our religious preferences catered to. The church of the living God exists for the purpose of gospel proclamation. We exist for the purpose of taking the gospel both to our neighbors and ultimately to the nations. And if you feel inadequate for that task, you're in good company. We are inadequate. It's not in our strength. It's not in our ability. But it's the Spirit's power in us. And this is what Peter is saying here in his sermon. And so he quotes from the prophet Joel. He's not done quoting from the Old Testament because he's going to quote from Psalm 16 and reference the resurrection and how David didn't really even fully understand what he was writing at the time. He wasn't writing of himself, but he was writing of the Christ who would not see corruption, who would not decay in a tomb or in a grave. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 110, verse number one. So his his message then is saturated with the truth of God's word. It's faithful to the scriptures. Folks, listen, aren't you grateful that there's power in the word of God? His word will not return to him void God says it'll always accomplish the thing for which he sends it out. Now that's the first component of any faithful sermon. It's got to be faithful to the scriptures. Number two, the second critical component is this. It's got to be focused in on Jesus Christ. Any gospel sermon has got to be focused in like a laser beam on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's obvious here that Peter's preaching focuses on Christ and on his redemptive work. He interprets scripture uh, through the lens of Christ and he sees Christ as being the fulfillment of prophecy and the focal point of it all. And so what does he say about Jesus? What is it that he declares about Jesus? Well, his message contains the truth, first of all, of the sinless life of Christ. Verse 22, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who's attested to you by God. So he's drawing their attention to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. He was not an ordinary human being, but he was the God-man. A man attested by God. That word attested there is a word that used, uh, it's used to speak of exhibiting something. It's a word that conveys proof of something or promotion to high office. And you'll notice there in verse 22 that Peter mentions at least three ways that Jesus was attested to by God. The first way was through the mighty works which were evident in his life, in his ministry. The word means miracles. 
It's a derivative of the word dunamis, which is the Greek word that means explosive power. And so Peter is saying that Jesus of Nazareth was a man, but no ordinary man. He was a man attested to by God through mighty works, dunamis, power, miracles. There was a supernatural power that was characteristic of his life. And then he uses the word works or wonders. Uh, and that describes the marveling that takes place in the mind of the person who witnesses that dunamis power in Christ's life. Think for a minute about what you would have been thinking if you were there at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Let's just say you were there in that little crowd that was gathered outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And you're there uh, with Mary and with Martha and all of the extended family and all of the neighbors and there's a lot of weeping because Lazarus had died. But Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus wept. But Jesus said this. He said, Lazarus! Come forth. I like what one preacher said. He, said. he said, Lazarus, come forth, because if he just said, come forth, then every person who had ever died would have come forth from their grave in that moment. The resurrection would have happened then. But he specifically says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. Can you imagine the wonder that would have been provoked in your mind had you witnessed that personally? That's what Peter is saying here, that word wonders. Jesus was attested to by wonders. And then signs. Signs speaks of the intention behind the, the miracles that were associated with our Lord's life. And those miracles were always for the purpose of pointing to who he was. God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Peter is saying here. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to by God through mighty works and wonders and signs. And so the Lord's sinless life. The second thing he mentions about Jesus is the Lord's atoning death. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. And how's that? For being direct. No mincing words here. No glossing this up. I mean, Peter just cuts right to the point. He gets to the point. Though it was the sovereign purposes of God for his son to die on the cross, you crucified him to that cross. You had him killed through the hands of lawless men. The sovereignty of God in the matter did not absolve them of personal responsibility. They were fully responsible before God. But Peter emphasizes the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Uh, he emphasizes the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though you crucified him, Peter says God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word pains there, uh, the word literally means birth pangs, like the pain of a woman uh, who is in labor and childbirth. But the pain is only temporary, and it leads to a wonderful result, and that result is new life. And Peter's using this as an illustration here. In the same way, death was only temporary for Jesus, and it resulted in the glory of bodily resurrection. Because he is God incarnate, death could not hold him, and his life guaranteed that death would have no power over him. So Peter is preaching the sinless life of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, but he's not through. 
He also preaches the exalted position of Jesus Christ. Uh, He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's saying the result of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into glory, the result of that is him pouring out his spirit and it's his power at work in our lives and that's what's on display for all of y'all to see. (laughs) That's what Peter's saying here. (laughs) That's a bold sermon, isn't it? This is a very different Simon Peter than we saw toward the end of the Gospels. The one who's cowering down before a servant girl at the fire of the chief priests. This is a Peter who is emboldened. This is a Peter who is empowered. He's been given the power of the Spirit of God to boldly declare who Jesus is. So, so his sermon, it's, it's faithful to the Scriptures. It's focused on Jesus. Look at a third component, though, of his sermon, and it ought to be true of every sermon, every gospel presentation, but it will always be fearless in its delivery if it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter's message, he, I'm telling you, he's fearless in the delivery of this sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so this fearlessness then requires a few things. The first being that of courage. This is some courage that's on display in Peter's life. Some of the very people that he was preaching to had been among the crowd that made the decision to have Jesus executed. That were there, driving the nails into his hands and feet. Yet Peter is boldly declaring the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one and only Savior. Because the thing is, the same thing could have happened to Peter as far as he knew. He too could have been executed. He too could have been put to death. He too could have had the angry mob rush at him, throw him outside the city walls and crucify him. So Peter is courageously declaring the truth of God. And this is the evidence of the Spirit's power in his life. And why is this important? Because listen to me. For you to serve God and be a witness for Jesus, you've got to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Christianity is not you imitating the life of Jesus. It's you participating in the life of Jesus. And it's Him living His life through you. He puts His Spirit in you to empower you to be the witness that He wants you to be. Guys, to be the men that He wants you to be who walk with Him. His Spirit's been given to you to empower you for that. Ladies, same thing's true for you. Christian moms and dads, teachers, Christian workers, businessmen and women who want to be witnesses for Christ on the job. It requires courage. But that courage is not something that you have to work up yourself. It's something that you simply rely upon the Spirit of God to produce in you as a witness for the Lord Jesus. Now that courage then leads to conviction. You look at the response of the crowd in verse number 37 when they heard Peter, uh, his sermon, the Bible says they were cut to the heart and they asked the question, what shall we do? When they're confronted with the truth that they were responsible 
for the crime of crucifying God's own son, they were cut to the heart. Literally, it means they were pierced. This is the work of the Spirit of God. You know, the preacher can't bring conviction to the heart of his listeners. No preacher can do that. No teacher can do that. No witness can do that. As much as you want to witness to people, as much as you want to see people come to know Jesus Christ, you can't save a person. You don't have the power to do that, do you? You don't even have the power to bring conviction to that person's heart, but that's what the Spirit of the living God does. He brings conviction to the heart, and no person can ever be saved apart from the Spirit's convicting work. As a preacher, I'm dependent upon the Spirit to take the truth of God's Word and bring it to bear upon the mind and the heart and the conscience and to produce conviction in a person's life. And, and, and it's the agitation of the Spirit of God in a person whereby the Spirit of God shows that person how desperately he or she needs to be forgiven of their sins and convicts them in the areas of sin, righteousness, and judgment and their accountability before God. Not so that Condemnation can be heaped upon their head, but so that they can have opportunity to look to Christ and be saved and be converted. Without the key of conviction, a person's heart remains locked to the gospel. So you've got conviction that's being produced. And then in response to their question, notice clarity, Peter's clarity. They ask the question, what shall we do? In view of our sin, in view of our need, what should our response before God be? And Peter says, listen, repent. Do an about face, a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Do an about face. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You want to be saved? Repent. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. This, this passage, this text, it's not a proof text for baptismal regeneration. There's nothing salvific or saving about the, the water and the baptistry up there. Y'all listening? That's just city of high point water. And when we forget to turn the heat on, it's cold. There's nothing inherent within that water that saves anybody. But the person who's standing in the waters of baptism, it's simply a visible demonstration of an inward transformation where the Spirit of God has taken the good news of Jesus Christ and has created a child of God. And a person who's in the water of baptism is just simply telling the world that now I'm publicly identifying with the one who's my Savior and my Lord and it's public because Jesus publicly hung on a cross for you. And so why would you not publicly testify that he's your Savior and your Lord? There are no secret disciples in the book of Acts. And by the way, those that would be baptized, they would be subject to a lot of ostracized they would have been ostracized by their family and their friends. There would have been a new stigma attached to them, converting to Christ. But they're not ashamed. One fourth and final component, and I'm done with this, a critical component of any faithful gospel message will be that it's fruitful in its results. 
those who heard Peter's word, those who received Peter's word, those who believed the message, they were baptized. And on that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. Prior to this, the church had been a little church. After this, the church became a big church. Prior to this, there were only 120 disciples. After this, now there are 3,120 disciples. Could you imagine 3,000 baby Christians? Goodness gracious, I can't imagine it. They're going to have to grow, aren't they? They're going to have to mature. But that's what's going to happen because now they're going to be a part of this community and they're going to give themselves to the apostolic doctrine and teaching and the Spirit of God is going to conform them and sanctify them and mold them and shape them more and more into the image of Jesus. And it's the same process that the Spirit's doing in our lives as well. And so a gospel message will always be fruitful in its results. That doesn't mean that it will always result in mass conversions like this. But you know something? God said that his word would never return to him void. And, and, and further, furthermore, how a person responds to you sharing the gospel or preaching the gospel, how they respond is none of your business. It's God's business. I've always tried to approach it this way. I thought, you know something? These two questions that are asked in Acts chapter 2, what does this mean? What must I do? Those are two good questions that every preacher ought to try to answer as he handles the Word of God. Two questions that every witness ought to consider as someone looks at our life. What does this mean? How do you explain the different quality of your life as a witness? What's so different about you? I've noticed that you're different under pressure. I've noticed that you don't get carried on. You don't, you don't get caught up with all of the foul language in this place like everybody else. What's different about you? What does this mean? It's a prime opportunity for you to share Christ. And then when you share Christ, you ought to anticipate every person asking this question, what must I do? And you then give that person an opportunity to repent of their sin and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Walk them to the baptistry. Disciple them in the faith. What a powerful message.